glad to have you. Glad to have you with us this morning. Um, turn your Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 22. Um, just a fantastic passage that we come to this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, just go up and put up your hand. Um, one of our ushers will put a Bible into that hand. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. I have nothing of value. Um, I bring nothing but but God's Word. And so our job this morning is not to, uh, um, not to hear what I have to say, um, but hopefully what I have to say um, reflects what God's Word says, and that's where we want to come humble before God's truth. As we come to Genesis 22, I was reminded of my first visit a number of years ago to my brother's house um, just outside of Boston. Um, we're going to visit there in a couple of weeks. Um, we spent the, a day uh, touring around the nearest little town to his house, a little town called Newburyport, Massachusetts, and a beautiful, historic town. It's gorgeous, um, more, feels more European than Canadian, cobblestone roads and old brick buildings, uh, Victorian houses from the 1700s. Um, the town center is just alive with quaint little shops and, and fantastic restaurants. Um, we, had a, we had a great time. Love the little town, Newburyport. Um, and I had this little inkling in the back of my mind. The, the town name was familiar, but I kind of dismissed it because some of these old town names, they all kind of run together. They sound the same. Um, but just a, about a month after we got back, um, I was reading a biography of one of my heroes of the faith, the great George Whitfield, um, one of the mightiest preachers um, that ever lived. Um, and, and as I got to the end of the book, I could hardly believe my eyes. Um, Whitfield, uh, he's this relentless preacher. Read, uh, he, he, uh, he traveled to uh, the New World seven times, traveled thousands of miles on horseback up and down the eastern seaboard, preaching the gospel in, in churches, and yet so many would often gather. He would preach out in fields filled with people. Um, his health began to fail after years of strenuous ministry. And he famously said, I would rather wear out than rust out. And he just continued to plod on. Um, after riding 30 miles through sleet and rain in failing health, he arrived at his next de uh, destination. And, and literally, they had to help him off of his horse. And he collapsed into bed. Um, but after being there only about an hour, the park outside the house began to fill with people that wanted to hear him preach. They had heard of the, the stories of this man and this gospel that he preached. And so he got up out of bed and he stood on the stairs of the parsonage that he was staying in. Uh, and he preached into the night holding a candle. He preached until the candle burned down and burned his hand. And at which point he quit and he literally collapsed then into bed in the parsonage there, never to rise again in this world. In his last sermon preached from the parsonage stairs. His body was finally buried under the pulpit in a crypt in Old South Church, Newburyport, Massachusetts. <laughs> you serious? I was right there. I had just walked through that. I was, I was no less than a block away from that parsonage and that church where one of my heroes, this world-transforming preacher, had preached his last sermon and died. I didn't even know it. And so you can imagine then the next time we went to visit my brother, hey, can we spend a day in Newburyport? Uh, I want to go back there. And this visit then was very different. Um, 
Those same streets that I wandered before now had a new um, wonder to them. We went and stood by the parsonage where he preached, stood in the park where his last sermon was heard. Um, We attended a service at Old South uh, Presbyterian Church, um, did a tour of the church. At one point, we actually walked through a, there's a space between the the original shell of the building and the the new renovations, and we walked through there. Um, I pocketed a small piece of window glass. A piece of window glass sits on my shelf in my office that that heard George Whitfield preach. Bit of a nerd, but it's kind of cool. Um, we ventured down into the basement. The crypt is there with his picture in brass and, and, and where his body lays. Uh, two very different trips. Same town, two very different visits. Both absolutely enjoyable. Both were legitimate visits, but very different experiences. As we come to Genesis 22 the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, We're we're going to approach it in that way, intentionally. Um, I know some of you have been here before. You know what makes this text special. You know that around every corner of this text, there are echoes of Jesus. The gospel, it's here. It's weaved through. It's everywhere. And it's absolutely true. You cannot fully appreciate this text unless you see Christ here. But at the same time, we're in danger of of just jumping so quickly to Christ and to the gospel here that we miss the town that it's sitting in. We don't see everything that the Lord has for us in this text. And so we're going to spend two Sundays in this text. Maybe it's it's one sermon stretched out over two weeks, um, looking at these same verses, but but from two different angles. And... uh, I won't be preaching for the next two weeks. Um, I have one week just out of the pulpit, and then the next week will be in Newburyport. And, uh, and so there's going to be a gap. It'll be September 10th when we come back to this text. Uh, and September 10th, we're going to look at the, the faithfulness of God and the wonder of the gospel that is so rich here. But this week, um, we want to spend our time looking at the faith of Abraham. And, and the original town that, that is essential to understanding that gospel and, and, and the, the setting that this is in. Um, and it is beautiful. And there is gospel truth here. So let's just take a minute, read this text together, uh, and then we'll walk through it. So Genesis 22, look at verses uh, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went 
both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it is living and active, that we come um, to read not just words of the past, of history, but words that have meaning and purpose for us today. God, would you loose my tongue to preach your truth. God, would you speak through me that I would speak not of my own strength, but speak as one who speaks oracles of God as I am faithful to what your word has said. And God, would you open our ears, soften our hearts that we may together hear your word, that it might convict us, God, that you would graciously cut us where we need to be cut that we would see um, our sin, our brokenness, our need for your grace. Lord, that you would heal us where we need to be healed. That we would see your grace, that we would see your love and your care. God, that you would be at work through your word for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a a shocking text. As I mentioned, it's rich with gospel truth, a text the church has rightly loved, um, delighted in since its beginning, that was significant text in in, in Judaism. But it's also a text that many have wondered at, wrestled with, scoffed at. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his own son. 
God commands Abraham to do something that is unthinkable. We, we are justifiably, incredibly uncomfortable here to say the least. But Moses, as the author of the book, tells us from the outset, the Lord is testing Abraham. The Lord is testing Abraham. That's the, the first point as we, as we look at this text, just stopping at verses 1 and 2. Trust God in the test. Trust God in the test. Let me just look at these, these first two verses after these things, he's, he's just the next logical progression. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, here I am. And God replied, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. As I mentioned last week, this is, this is the high point. This is the pinnacle of the, the, the narrative, the story of Abraham. This is the climax. Um, you'll notice some, some parallels here to the beginning of Abraham's story. That seems very intentional. Um, as Moses is writing this, these, these are bookends. And, and it, it's drawing attention to the call from the beginning, from chapter 12, and, and this call here in, in chapter 22. And so these parallels, you see um, Genesis 12, verse 1, God says to Abraham, go from your country, from your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Um, both start with this just single word command, go, take. They both have this kind of increasing specificity that, that builds from your country, your kindred, your father's house, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. They both call him to an unknown place. Go to a, a land that I will show you. Go to the mountain that I will tell you. Abraham's journey with God began with this call to faith, a call to, to follow into the unknown, to trust God. And at the end, this call to faith, again, a command to trust him, to follow uh, into the unknown. These are these bookends of the story of Abraham. This is God's ultimate test. And it's a reminder for us to, to trust the Lord in the test. And that God does test his saints. We need to trust him in the midst of that. Ultimately, as I'm wrestling with this passage all week, it, it was the New Testament that, that forced me to preach this in two sermons um, Nowhere in the New Testament is Genesis 22 uh, explicitly referenced um, in connection to the gospel. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say Isaac is a, is a type of Christ. And look at the gospel played out in Genesis 22. It's, it's not there. There's some allusions. There's some implicit hints. And, and, and they're amazing. And we'll, we'll get into that next time. But, but twice in the New Testament, Genesis 22 is directly quoted and the focus of both of those passages is not the foreshadowing of Jesus. It's the testing of Abraham. It's the faith of Abraham. Hebrews 11, 17 and 18 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham was 
tested. It was by faith, this exemplary faith that, that he was, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He, he gave Isaac as a sacrifice. The other passage is James chapter 2, verse 20. James writes, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone controversial passage. People wrestled with that. How do we make sense with Paul's teaching that we're saved by grace alone through faith and not by works? Um, We'll get into that in a minute. The context here of of James 2 is, shockingly, James 1, verses 1 and 2. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing. So James is using Abraham as an example of this testing through trials. The Lord tested Abraham through this trial. And here Hebrews says it was by faith that that Abraham offered up Isaac. James says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. That's crucial to understanding this in context with Paul. We are saved by Grace through faith, not of works. There's nothing you could ever do to earn salvation. It is a gift of God, freely given. We're saved by faith and not by anything you could do, but true saving faith, the kind of faith that actually saves, is a faith that changes what you do. It's downstream from salvation, but it's there and it's necessary. It's not empty faith. It isn't enough just to say the words, I trust the Lord. You need to actually trust Him. You need to actually believe Him. And those who actually, truly trust Him will show that trust in obedience. Think of two children uh, playing with their toys in the middle of a highway and, and a Mack truck coming down the road. And the father cries out to his two children, do you trust me? And they both look up and say, yes, we trust you. And he says, then leave your toys right now, run to me. One child jumps up, drops his toys, runs to his father and is safe. The other child looks at his father, looks at his toys, continues to play. Both can say, yeah, we trust you. One put that trust into action. One truly trusted his father because he obeyed. We can see that trust work its way out. And so James says faith was completed by his works. And he goes on to say that this fulfilled what was said, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed God. He had faith and he was saved by that faith. And then as he walked it out in obedience, that was fulfilled. It was completed. It was shown on the stage of actual history. Calvin sums it up very helpfully. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. 
we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by, by action. The Lord is calling on Abraham to prove his faith. He's giving him this opportunity to make his faith visible in this lived-out experience. And so, as James says, we all face trials of various kinds. We ought to embrace those moments. He says we ought to count it joy as we do. Your faith is being tested. You're being given this opportunity to, to, to show your faith, to prove to the, to the world, to the Lord, to, to our own selves, that our faith isn't just words, that it's not a hollow, empty, fake faith, but that you actually do trust Him. That you actually walk in obedience to Him, even when it's hard. I have this conversation with my children often. Well, I told you to do this. Yeah, but I didn't want to. Yeah, that's why it's obedience. It's easy to obey when your dad says, eat your Fruit Loops. Okay, dad, I'll do that. Are you actually trusting me? Or is that just what you wanted to do already and it's convenient that it follows with my commands? But when I say, go take a shower, well, I don't want to. I know. Well, I don't see why. I know. Well, I, why should I? No, 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 no. Do you trust me? Yeah. I trusted you in eating my Fruit Loops. Yeah. That's great. What about when it's hard? What about when God commands what your heart doesn't want? Then we see the truth of it. Then we see actual faith working its way out. That's what trials do. That's what these tests accomplish. What, what are the trials that you're facing today? What are the areas of, of life where obedience is difficult? It's hard. God is calling you to do something that is, that is uncomfortable, something that your heart doesn't want to do, to give something up or risk something that you treasure for the sake of obedience. That's the trial that James is talking about. Your faith is being tested. It's being proven right there. You have an opportunity to put your faith into action, to make it visible by doing something that you would never have done on your own and doing it out of obedience to God. But I don't understand. Okay. But I don't want to. Okay. Do you trust God? Do you have faith, living true faith? You need to trust God in the test. Now, some of you laugh at me, and rightly so. If it weren't me, I would laugh at me too. Um, but I do try to make my points a little more memorable. I usually end up with some kind of alliteration. This time, it's just by accident. Um, I just ended up with full-on rhyming. So I hope that's more helpful than distracting. Um, trust God through the test. Secondly, trust God with your best, with the thing that you love the most, the thing that's most precious to you. Look at verses 2 to 10. Let me just read them again, have them fresh before us. He said, God speaking to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here 
with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place in which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. There he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Probably one of the most dramatic passages in all of the Bible. The building tension is just about unbearable. The Lord tests Abraham by asking for that thing that he prized the absolute most. The thing that he loved more than life itself. He said to Abraham, take your son. He doesn't stop there. The Lord lays it on thick. Your only son. Abraham had sent Ishmael away off into the wilderness. He had burned the ships. He had cut off that back door. This is his only son now. I think looking just at the translation to nitpick a little bit, I think the ESV gets it wrong. They, they changed the order of the wording here. Um, Isaac, whom you love, makes sense. That reads naturally. Um, but the Hebrew has Isaac at the end, and I think that's intentional. Your son, your only son, whom you love, his dear, precious child, and then at the end is the hardest-hitting Isaac, that son, your laughter, your joy, the one that you delight in. Take that son and offer him as a burnt offering. The burnt offering, um, there's no coming back. That is wholly consumed by fire. Take your son, offer him as a burnt offering. He asks Abraham to give up, to sacrifice to him that which he loved best of all, which he prized and treasured above everything else. Amazingly, verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. We've seen this a few times. It is immediate obedience. He's not lingering. He's not wondering. He obeyed early in the morning. And so it's not a reflex. It's not just a spontaneous obedience without asking or without thinking about it. He also journeyed three days. He's got three days to wrestle with this, to mull on this, to be tormented by it. But during that journey, Abraham's faith only grows. It strengthens. Verse 5, they arrive at the place. Abraham says to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go and worship. And then the, the grammar is, is explicitly plural. I and the boy will come back to you. How can he say that? If he plans to sacrifice Isaac, if he's determined to obey, how can he say, I and the boy will come back to you? Well, Hebrews 11 is helpful again. Verse 19 um, tells us how he can say that. 
says that he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so on the journey, as Abraham is walking, contemplating, he's, he's wrestling with this, he's considering it, and he's considering the, the promises of God that God said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the promised child. This is the one you're going to have many children through this child. And then he's considering God's command. Sacrifice this child. Kill him. Burn him on the altar. God had promised and then God had commanded and they just didn't seem to fit. And the only way, as he considers this, the only way he can reconcile them is to consider that God is faithful and he must be obeyed. And so he's presuming that God is able to raise the dead. I can do one and he will still be faithful. So he said to his servants, we'll be back. God is faithful. We will be back somehow. I don't know how, but we'll be back. Verse 7, Isaac carries the wood up the mountain, Abraham carries the fire and the knife, the two elements that will destroy his son in his hands. And at this point, Isaac speaks. And the conversation is so intimate and, and personal. My father, here I am, my son. And we're not told for sure, but I think looking at the text, I think this is where Isaac figures it out. I think he knows what's up. We don't know how old he was, except that he's old enough to carry the wood for the fire, and yet he's still called a boy, the same word that was used of Ishmael when he was 13 and 16. So presumably Isaac is somewhere in there, 13 to 16. And they live in a culture where child sacrifice happens. It's around them. They've they've seen this. It's not a mystery to them. And Isaac looks at his father and he says, I I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the lamb? Dad, what's going on? Abraham's words are one thing. But I think we consider the the body language here as well. What What would Abraham's eyes have betrayed? What would his body language have been in that moment faced with that question? And even in his answer, it's actually very interesting grammatically. It's not clear. He says, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And and my son could simply be the, the object of the sentence. That's who he's speaking to. He's addressing it to my son. Or it could just as easily be read, the Lord will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It is my son. It could be the grammatical term is in, in apposition. They, they could be identifying the same thing. And yet, just at the, the end of verse 6, at the start, so they went, both of them together. Verse 8 repeats, so they went, both of them together. And as they arrive, it's like Moses um, begins telling the story in slow motion. Every detail is mentioned. He, he slows it right down, drawn out for emphasis, for anticipation. The altar is built. The wood is arranged. The boy is bound. He's laid on the altar. Finally, Abraham reached out his hand and took 
the knife, and then he uses this gruesome word to slaughter his son. For all intents and purposes, Abraham has obeyed. Verse 11, the Lord will stay his hand. The Lord will halt him before the the last crucial moment. But Hebrews 11 says, figuratively, he did receive his son back from the dead because it was good as done. He had determined in his heart, he had made the decision. Everything had happened except for the, the firing of the nerve to reach the movement of the muscles. Sacrificing his son, his only son, whom he loved, his joy, his laughter. The Lord's test boils down to one simple but poignant question. Do you love me more than anything else? Will you sacrifice every other competing love for me? The opposite of Abraham is the rich young ruler, Mark 10. It's too big to put on the screen. You can turn there if you want or just listen as I read. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all, uh, sorry, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man lived a righteous life. He was doing better, I dare say, than any of us. He's a model Jew. At least by his own assessment, he can stand eye to eye with Jesus and say, I have kept all of those commands since I was a child. I can't can't say that. And yet, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. You lack one thing. But it's the only thing. It's the ultimate thing. He says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll be saved. Then you can come follow me. And and the point is not that anyone who wants to follow Jesus needs to divest themselves of all of their money and possessions and be poor and follow Jesus to be broke. No, Jesus knew the heart. Jesus is just getting to the heart of the issue here. Jesus says, take your wealth, your only wealth that you love, and give it as a burnt offering to me. Do you love me more than anything else? And the rich young ruler looks at his wealth and he looks at Jesus and he has to decide, which one do I love more? Which one do I trust more will give me joy and happiness? And in one of the saddest moments in all of Scripture, he says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He loved his wealth more than he loved the Lord. He was willing to obey and live a good life and do all these things. Just not that, Lord. That's my highest goal, my comfort, my position, my power. He trusted in his wealth more than he trusted God. God says, I will give you life and life abundant. Come follow me. And wealth says, I will give you life. And he trusted wealth 
He was more comfortable there. True faith sees God for who he is. True faith has spiritual eyes to see the the unspeakably beautiful, inexhaustibly majestic, irresistible wonder and glory of, of the goodness of God that infinitely outshines everything else. That's the eyes of faith, to to see and love God. True faith doesn't just run after the promises of God or the gifts of God. If If I follow God, then I'll have a good life and Jesus will be the cherry on top. No. True faith says, I want him. He is my greatest good. That's what I'm after. God himself. True faith, having seen the beauty of God himself, will sacrifice every other thing if it gains only God himself. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, Matthew 16, 24, 25. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For anyone who would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Same thing he said to the rich young ruler. Are you willing to give up your life? Are you willing to sacrifice this wealth that you have and follow me? Because if you're going to follow me, you need to do it. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to truly be my disciple, um, then you're all in here. Jesus will be your greatest love. Take up your cross, put yourself to death, follow me. But again, not out of some morbid sense of of self-inflicted suffering. This is not some great sacrifice. But out of the, the overflow of the heart that sees and treasures and loves the Lord. It's no, it's no sacrifice to have to choose between a, a $5 bill and a and a $100,000 sports car. You don't think, oh, poor me, I had to give up the $5 bill. No. No, if you see the glory of the Lord, then we say, that's what I want. He's saying, whoever would fill himself with the endless feast of my goodness and glory has to first spit out the dust of this world. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, 7 to 8. He says, whatever gain I had, whatever worldly success, and he's talking about his his prestige and his power and position in, in the world as a Pharisee, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them in, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Nothing else compares. I don't want anything else. It doesn't matter in comparison to him. He sees that Christ is better. Take the whole world and give me Jesus. Jesus is better. Can you say that? Can can you honestly say that you love him, that you choose him over anything else, everything else, your marriage, your family, your career, your prestige, your comfort. If God were to say, follow me and leave it behind, what would you say? And if we're honest, to many of those questions, if not most or all, at some level we say, I don't know. Not really. 
I mean, I can say yes. I can believe it to be true. I might even grip my teeth and, and, and say I declare it to be true, but I don't really know it in the truest sense until I'm tested. Until I have to give that up for the glory of God. And that's where trials become this opportunity. When I have to choose between the desire of my heart and obedience to the Lord, when the Lord says, take your hopes, take your dreams, take your reputation, take your career, give them up as an offering to me, then we see what James is talking about. Then we see that, that, that we can count it a joy to be tested. It's a good thing to have this opportunity to, to truly trust him, to practically live out my faith. Here we go. It's game time. Practice has been good, but now it's on. We have this real, tangible, experiential evidence that my faith is indeed more than just words. Trust God in the test. Trust Him with your best. Trust Him with what is most precious and beloved. Thirdly, trust God and find rest. Find rest. Look at verses 11 to 19 with me here. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because if you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring and the stars of the heaven and the sands that are, uh, is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Remember where we left off, the climbing tension, that moment Abraham took the knife in his hand to slaughter his son. And then verse 11 breaks in at that very last moment, Abraham, Abraham. He's about to kill his only son and God calls him by his name, which means father of multitudes. It's so easy, I think, to read the Bible and, and forget the emotion, forget what's going on. Not here. Imagine Abraham's response. This pressure has been building for days. He's at the moment of heartbreaking climax and he hears God call his name. Yes, Lord, here I am. Here I am right where you told me to be, doing what you asked me to do. It's heartbreaking. It's hard. I don't want to be here, but here I am. Don't make this any harder, Lord. Just, just let this be over with. 
And to his great shock and even greater relief, the Lord says, don't lay a hand on the boy. You can just imagine the tears would have come instantly. The knife drops from his hand. I don't doubt that his knees buckled beneath him. The Lord says, for now I know that you fear God. Fear of the Lord, um, very much parallel to our idea of trust, faith. This is not a statement about the omnipotence of God. God is not learning something new here. This is the Lord revealing to Abraham what we've seen from the beginning. This is a test. This was an opportunity for you to put your faith into action. Just then, Abraham sees in the thicket behind him a ram caught by his horns. The Lord provided a sacrifice in the place of his son. And so Abraham calls the name of the place Yahweh Yirah. Maybe you've heard it, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Abraham gave up his life, gave up his only hope of, of God's blessing, his, his future, his, his family, his son trusting in God. And the Lord responded by resurrecting that hope from the dead. Not just Isaac, his son, but, but Isaac through whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. The voice of the Lord spoke then a second time to Abraham, makes this interesting statement. Verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Now God has already sworn by himself on his own life that he would bless Abraham. He walked between the animal halves himself saying, uh, if I do not fulfill my promise, may I be like these animals. That was never in question. God's promise was sure. Abraham was already justified before the Lord. Abraham, uh, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's past tense. That's happened. And yet the Lord says, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. God had made a promise. It was sure. But now he's working that promise out. It would not fail. It was grounded in God's own unchanging faithfulness and, and character. And yet it would still work its way out through Abraham's obedience. It's not dependent on Abraham's obedience, but it would come through Abraham's obedience. And in response to this obedience, the Lord gives this final and, and fullest reiteration of this promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. It's the same promise from, from chapter 12, from chapter 15, from chapter 17. Each time it's reiterated, it's filled out just a little bit more. Instead of, I will bless you from chapter 12, he says, I will surely bless you. Here he connects the, the sand of the seashores and the stars in the sky. He's, he's connecting the promise of chapter 12, the, the sand of the seas with the vision that, that God gave him under the night sky. And not only he says, um, will all the nations of the earth be blessed through his offspring, but pointing all the way back to, to Genesis 3.15, the promise that the, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He says that Abraham's offspring 
will possess the gates of his enemies. It's a statement of military conquest. And the offspring there is singular. We have this interesting play between offspring plural, the nation of Israel, and offspring singular, Jesus. Jesus Christ would come. He would defeat the enemy of sin and death. He would, as God promised from the beginning, to return humanity back to a better than garden of Eden Eden world. Abraham's sacrifice of faith, his surrendering of himself to the Lord, was the, the path not just to a better life, but to eternal life. Abraham has trusted God in the test. He's trusted God with his most beloved, prized treasure. And the outcome is that now he can trust God and rest. He has confidence. He has this new hope and and assurance and peace in the Lord. And in this beautiful but simple summary, verse 19 says, And they arose and went together to Beersheba. Trusting the Lord, Abraham is at rest in the promises of God, and and they went home. They went home together. Do you trust the Lord like that? It's really easy to ask that question and then get all tied up in knots because the first thing we do is start looking at ourselves, looking at my faith and and my obedience and, 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 and our lives. But that's never where Abraham was looking. That's not the point. Abraham, the whole time, was looking not at himself, but at the faithfulness of God. He trusted the Lord, that the Lord provided. He walked in obedience, not with his eyes fixed on himself, but his eyes fixed on God, believing that God would raise the dead. And so he had assurance, he had confidence, he had rest as he walked in obedience with his eyes fixed on the Lord. What's the trial that you're in today? What is that best thing in your life that is, that is working at your heart, that is pulling you away from the Lord? The thing that challenges God for the, the highest priority in your life? What is it that you need to put on the altar for the sake of following the Lord? If you're not sure what it is, look at your sin. Every time you sin, that's a, that's a symptom. That's an outworking of a love in your heart that has risen too high. Something that, that, that is more beloved to you, more tangible to you, something that you're seeking over obedience to the Lord. And it's that love that the Lord is asking you to put on the altar. And it's His kindness that he gives us this test, that we would have the opportunity to sacrifice it, to put it to the test, to to show um, that our faith is more than just words. Trust him. He's better than whatever that love is. He is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. Trust him. Rest in his faithfulness, rest in his goodness, rest in his unchanging promises. We're going to close this morning celebrating communion together. Ask Ben and Jason if you'd 
come and, and prepare to lead us in worship. As we celebrate communion, taking the, the bread and the cup, one, one of the things that we declare is that Jesus is our hope. That he's our life. He's our, our food and drink. In him we have sustenance that we need for our souls. He's our hope. He's our joy. He's our desire. And it's in his death that we have true life. So um, as we sing together and the elements are handed out, if, if that's not you, if you're not able to say, he's my life, then and we ask you just to observe. Let the cup pass by and just observe and consider your own heart. Now, as we've already said a few times this morning, none of us had the perfect week. Um, none of us had the perfect morning. Um, we are sinful. We have this competing loves in our hearts. We have the, the power of sin still wrestling in us. Jesus doesn't say, come to me all who are perfect and walking upright. He says, come to me all who are needy, all who are weary. We come with brokenness. We come in repentance. That's the, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf because we need it. And so communion is not a place for the perfect. It's a place for the repentant. It's a place for those who come to cry out and say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I want you more than anything else. Help me root out these competing loves that are so strong in me. And like Abraham, um, we are counted as righteous, not because of the level of obedience that we rise to, but because of a humble, desperate faith in the Lord, trusting him and trusting him and resting in him. Then we walk in obedience. Then we walk in, in that transformed life. And in that we have growing assurance and confidence and joy in the blessing of God, but we come as sinners. So uh, would you stand as the